You're listening to the Dead Presidents Podcast. I'm James J. Hamilton. And I'm Stephen Lincoln Douglas. Well, what do you say, Steve? You want to do a top five this week? Oh, no. No, not really feeling it, James. I'm going to politely decline. Well, that is the theme of this week's episode. We've got the top five declined Supreme Court nominations. Welcome to the Dead Presidents Podcast. Steve has been prevailed upon to change his mind and participate in this episode. Indeed. Um, yeah, you'd think being on the Supreme Court's a pretty prestigious job. A lot of people would be jumping at the chance. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. Nope. Sometimes people have recoiled from the chance to be on the Supreme Court. And some pretty big names... Indeed. Uh, some future presidents and legendary founding fathers. Yeah. Lots of people making a big impact on American history by not being on the Supreme Court. So who are the top five of these individuals? Well, let's dive into the top five declined Supreme Court nomination. Number five. Martin Van Buren. When Justice Smith Thompson died in late 1843, President John Tyler saw an opportunity to bolster his chances in the 1844 election. Tyler was a former Democrat who became a Whig and was nominated for vice president on the Whig ticket under William Henry Harrison. He became president when Harrison died 31 days into his term and was soon expelled from the Whig party for his refusal to follow its agenda, particularly on raising tariffs and rechartering a national bank. Tyler hoped to be elected in his own right in 1844 and needed Democratic support. His main obstacle was the presumed frontrunner for the Democratic presidential nomination, former President Martin Van Buren. An economic depression had doomed Van Buren's 1840 re-election campaign, but he was gearing up to take another shot in 1844. Tyler thought he could get Van Buren out of his way by murdering him. <laughs> Tyler thought he could get Van Buren out of his way by offering him a seat on the Supreme Court. The justice who had just died had been a New Yorker and a Van Buren ally. On New Year's Eve, 1843, a Tyler supporter named John Thompson Mason approached New York Senator Silas Wright, Van Buren's closest associate, and asked whether the former president would be interested in the Supreme Court seat. Wright burst into an, quote, immediate fit of laughter before realizing that Mason was actually serious. Mason spent a couple hours trying to convince Wright that Van Buren didn't have a chance in the presidential election and, before leaving, asked Wright what he thought. Wright said, quote, Tell Mr. Tyler for me that if he wants to give the whole country a broader, deeper, heartier laugh than it ever had and at his own expense, he can affect it by making the nomination. Wright recorded that after Mason left, he laughed himself almost sick. Tyler did not nominate Van Buren, but he did get the last laugh. Tyler pushed full speed ahead on the annexation of Texas, and Van Buren's opposition to annexation ended up costing him the Democratic nomination. That went instead to James K. Polk. 
who defeated anti-annexation Whig nominee Henry Clay in the general election and, in his first major act as president, completed Tyler's annexation. Big deal. Yeah. Very important. And then, of course, Van Buren would end up running as a third-party candidate in 1848 on the free soil ticket, possibly costing uh, Democrat Lewis Cass the election. Indeed. Allowing uh, Zachary Taylor to get in there. Most important. Who knows what would have happened if there was Justice Martin Van Buren at at that time instead. Sure, the country would have had a bit of a laugh. Indeed. And that's going to bring us around to the top five declined Supreme Court nomination. Number four. William Howard Taft. You might be thinking, wait, but William Howard Taft was on the Supreme Court. Well... Not so fast. Yeah. But wait, there's more. Taft started off as a lawyer, a law professor, and an Ohio state court judge who dreamed of one day sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1889, Ohio's governor lobbied President Benjamin Harrison to appoint Taft to the Supreme Court, but Harrison instead gave Taft the job of solicitor general and later appointed him as a judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Not quite the Supreme Court. But in 1898, a Supreme Court seat opened up, and Taft wanted the appointment. He wanted it bad, but President McKinley instead named Taft to the Executive Commission to govern the Philippines, which the U.S. had just acquired in the Spanish-American War, and which was beginning a bit of a insurgency against U.S. rule. McKinley would end up naming Taft as the Philippines' first civilian governor in 1901, and then in 1902, the new president, Theodore Roosevelt, finally offered Taft a seat on the Supreme Court. But Taft reluctantly turned it down because he felt obligated to finish his work in the Philippines. Mm. In 1904, he became Secretary of War. He's on the rise. But in 1906, yet another Supreme Court seat opened up, and this one is taps for the taking. But once again, he refused, because by this time, it's looking like he would be TR's chosen successor, and he's going to be a shoo-in for the Republican presidential nomination in 1908, which he got and he won serving four years as president before he lost his re-election campaign because old T.R. split the party by running against him as a third-party candidate, allowing the Democrat Woodrow Wilson to get in there. Taft would end up becoming a law professor at his alma mater of Yale until 1921, when Chief Justice Edward White died, President Harding, a fellow Ohioan, offered the position to Taft, who finally accepted he made it to the Supreme Court in the end. Yep, third time was a charm. Yep. Said no a couple of times. If he had said yes, eh, we got no President Taft. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened there. Might have had no President Wilson if the Republican Party wasn't being split in 1912. Well, TR might not have considered his first term his second term. Well, 
if he had a different uh, successor from Taft, he was more palatable to him. He might not have uh, challenged, and that guy might have been reelected in yeah. 1912. The Republican Party might have continued to dominate. Yeah. A lot of different yeah. what-ifs there. Yeah. And that's going to bring us to the top five declined Supreme Court nomination. Number three. James Buchanan. When President Polk took office in 1845, there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Polk's new Secretary of State, James Buchanan, had his eye on that seat, but no one was sure whether it was his nearsighted or his farsighted eye, and he was indecisive about it. He was worried that it might be difficult for him to serve in Polk's cabinet if Polk were to push for lower tariffs, a policy opposed by Buchanan's native Pennsylvania. But he also felt his cabinet post would be more important if the United States were to go to war with Mexico and or Britain. After delaying for months, he passed on the current vacancy after asking Polk to keep him in mind for a future vacancy. When a second seat opened up, Buchanan recommended fellow Pennsylvanian John Reed, but Polk didn't trust Reed because he was a former Federalist. Buchanan took it as a personal rebuke when Polk nominated George Woodward, a member of a rival Pennsylvania faction. Buchanan told friends in the Senate that he himself hoped to be on the Supreme Court, and Woodward's nomination was rejected in January of 1846. Some Democrats who voted against Woodward encouraged Polk to consider Buchanan. Polk suspected Buchanan had conspired against Woodward and wrote in his diary that if he had proof, he, quote, would regard it as such bad faith to me by a member of my cabinet that I would instantly dismiss him. A Buchanan friend approached Polk and denied that Buchanan had a hand in Woodward's rejection, but said that Buchanan had indeed changed his mind and would like to be on the Supreme Court. Polk was furious and held the seat open until late June when he told Buchanan he could have it if he wanted it. Buchanan said he would accept, then said he would leave it up to Polk, then Polk said he would leave it up to Buchanan, who said he would accept. Polk said he would nominate Buchanan near the end of the congressional session. Buchanan asked to be nominated immediately, saying he feared that if the appointment lingered, opposition to his nomination would be organized in the Senate. Polk said he didn't think that was likely, and wanted to wait until the end of the session because he didn't want a Secretary of State vacancy to divide Democratic factions and distract Congress from his agenda, as major bills to lower tariffs and establish an independent treasury were pending at the time. A month later, Buchanan told Polk that he had, again, changed his mind and would stay in the cabinet. Polk promptly nominated Robert Greer of Pennsylvania, who was not of Buchanan's Pennsylvania faction. Polk became increasingly frustrated with Buchanan as he saw Buchanan as increasingly motivated by ambitions to become president. Polk had pledged to only serve one term, and Buchanan had his eye on the 1848 nomination. Again, not sure which eye. Hmm. Buchanan would fall short of the nomination at the Democratic conventions of 1848 and 1852, but his presidential ambitions were finally gratified in 1856. The rest is history. Yeah. What if he were safely on the Supreme Court when the South began to secede? Yeah. He might have had somebody else in there. Yeah. Who was less of a granny. Yeah, who would be the worst president? Grant would put it. Well, he might have had Stephen Douglas at the time. Yeah, you never know. He was another top contender in 1856. Yeah. Quite well, a quite vexing indecision on the part on can, the part of Buchanan. You well, could probably safely count on Buchanan to do what Robert Greer did and join the 
loathsome majority in the Dred Scott case. Yeah. Well, that is going to bring us on down to the top five denied Supreme Court nomination. Number two. John Quincy Adams. John Adams was a Federalist president lambasted by Jeffersonian Republicans, but when his son served in the Senate during the Jefferson administration, John Quincy Adams was such an independent spirit that he earned the respect of Republicans and the ire of Federalists who declined to reelect him to a second term. But that was okay because in 1809, the new Republican president, James Madison, appointed him as U.S. Minister to Russia. And a couple years later, in 1811, while JQA was in Russia, Madison nominated him for a Supreme Court seat and the Senate unanimously confirmed him. So we've got Justice John Quincy Adams, right? Yeah. Well, when JQA found out about this, he was less than thrilled. His mother, Abigail Adams, wrote to him that the court was more honorable even than being president and his father wrote that he would cause, quote, national disgust and embarrassment if he declined to serve. However, JQA had hated being a lawyer and had used politics and diplomacy as a means of escaping that career. He had no desire to go back into legal work, and he felt that he was too impatient and aggressive to exercise the restraint required of a judge. And he wrote to his brother, Quote, I am also, and always shall be, too much of a political partisan for a judge. JQA wrote to President Madison, regretfully declining the honor and using his wife's pregnancy as an excuse, saying that uh, he would consequently be unable to travel back from Europe for over a year. Well, Madison turned to his second choice, Joseph Story, who would become one of the most influential justices in the court's early history, second only to John Marshall, Story served for 33 years, and in 1841, he wrote the court's majority opinion in the Amistad case, deciding in favor of the argument presented by ex-president John Quincy Adams. Indeed. And the circle is now complete. Yeah. It's another big decline. It is. Would have had not only no President JQA, but no Secretary of State JQA. Right. More importantly, I should say. Yeah. Who knows how. Maybe uh, might have had President Andrew Jackson four years earlier. Who knows how that 1824 election would have shaken out. Might have got Henry Clay in there. You never know. Quite an interesting thing to ponder. Mm-hmm. And that's going to bring us on down to the top five declined Supreme Court nominations. Number one. Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. Bit of a tie at the top. Yeah, we got a, we got a tie up here. At its outset, the Supreme Court was not a very attractive position. It was the forgotten third branch of government and was not yet making important rulings. Even worse... Justices were required to spend months of the year on the road serving in the circuit courts. The first Chief Justice, John Jay, served abroad as a diplomat while he was on the court, negotiating the landmark Jay Treaty with Britain. 
1795, Jay resigned from the court to become governor of New York. President Washington had trouble filling the position with a top-notch candidate. Attorney General William Bradford wrote in frustration to Alexander Hamilton, who had recently resigned as uh, Treasury Secretary, quote, Your squabbles in New York have taken our Chief Justice from us. Ought you not to find us another? I am afraid that department, as it relates neither to war, finance, nor negotiation, has no charms for you. And yet, when one considers how immensely important it is, where they have the power of paralyzing the measures of the government by declaring a law unconstitutional, it is not to be trusted to men who are to be scared by popular clamor or warped by feeble-minded prejudices. I wish to heaven you would permit me to name you. If not, what think you of Mr. Randolph? Hamilton's response, if any, is not preserved. Washington never bothered to formally offer him the position because it was clear he wouldn't be interested. Hamilton had just stepped down from his triumphant tenure as Treasury Secretary and resumed his private law practice, where he was making more than three times as much as the salary of a Supreme Court justice. Washington named John Rutledge as a re recess appointment, but the Senate later rejected him because he had criticized the Jay Treaty. Connecticut Senator Oliver Ellsworth took the position and held it for five years. Mm -hmm. Ellsworth also served abroad as a diplomat while he was Chief Justice, and he was in France in 1800 when he fell ill and resigned from the Supreme Court. President John Adams promptly named John Jay to return to the position of Chief Justice, and the Senate confirmed him. But Jay had just declined renomination as governor of New York, and he was determined to retire. When he learned of his appointment, he wrote to Adams, quote, I left the bench perfectly convinced that under a system so defective, the judicial department would not obtain the energy, weight, and dignity which are essential to its affording due support to the national government, nor acquire the public confidence and respect which, as the last resort of the justice of the nation, it should possess. Hence, I am induced to doubt both the propriety and expediency of my returning to the bench under the present system, especially as it would give some countenance to the neglect and indifference with which the opinions and remonstrances of the judges on this important subject have been treated. Although I wish and am prepared to be and remain in retirement, yet I have carefully considered what is my duty and ought to be my conduct on this unexpected and interesting occasion, I find that, independent of other considerations, the state of my health removes every doubt, it being clearly and decidedly incompetent to the fatigues incident to the office. When President Adams learned of Jay's refusal, he looked at John Marshall, his new Secretary of State, and said, Who shall I nominate now? Marshall said he didn't know, and Adams said, I believe I must nominate you. He did just that. And under Marshall's leadership, the Supreme Court soon obtained the energy, weight, and dignity it had previously lacked. Indeed. Wow. So our listeners will know from the top five Supreme Court justices, John Marshall really changed the game. Indeed. All those things Jay complained about the court, like not having Marshall got him that's it so who knows what would have happened if he had not gone in there then again you know chief justice alexander hamilton 
would have probably uh, been pretty ener energetic in the office, although might not have been as much of a consensus builder as Marshall. Yeah, being kind of a uh, you know political lightning rod. Right. I also think that if Hamilton had gone on the court at that time, when the quasi war broke out a couple years later. Um, he might have resigned to become a general because he wanted to lead the army more than anything. Yeah. So he probably would have uh, chosen that over being on the court. But yeah, a couple of chances there that we might have missed out on Chief Justice Marshall. Yeah. To uh, two of the three authors of the Federalist Papers. Right. Not being interested in, in the Supreme Court at that time. Mm -mm. But it was pretty safe in Marshall's hands. Indeed. The very capable hands of Papa John Marshall. Indeed. And that's going to bring us to the end of our top five this week. And I'm sure our listeners will decline to do anything else other than continue to listen to more episodes of the Dead Presidents <laughs> Podcast. Indeed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>